0: Well, as I said, I have a lot to cover. Um, I'm going to probably talk a little fast. Hopefully my voice will hold out and my cough won't be too intrusive. Um, Over the past couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Desmond began our class on worship, biblical, and reformed by focusing on the subject of the Sabbath. We started with this because an understanding of the Sabbath is foundational To a proper understanding of biblical worship today and next week we plan to focus on a biblical theology of worship as seen in the Old Testament and the New Testaments respectively we want to understand the rich Old Testament background and types to help us appreciate more fully our privileges as God's people worshiping under the New Covenant both the Sabbath and the uh, Sabbath in the Old Testament and Old Covenant worship were both typological and temporary. That is, they pointed towards something fuller, something final. And when that full reality would finally come, the Old would pass away. With regard to the Sabbath, as Desmond explained, Adam was originally created to fulfill the Covenant of Works, which would bring him into the eschatological experience of God's Sabbath rest, In fullness. Of course Adam failed to enter that rest and with Adam's failure and punishment came the promise of one who would ultimately be victorious and lead God's people into that rest. This one seed of the woman then becomes the central figure and focus of the rest of the scriptures and of all of history. In scripture everything moves toward or flows out of his promised coming his work of redemption, and his bringing all things to their intended eschatological consummation. But in the meantime, because of man's fallen condition, and in light of this promise, new accommodations were made by God for man to provide for a restoration of that lost fellowship. Specifically, God provided ways and means by which man could approach God and worship God And receive blessings from God, by which God himself could dwell with man in an accommodated form. Last week we saw how the Old Covenant Sabbath was a sign given to Israel of their deliverance and exodus from bondage in Egypt. The New Covenant Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, is a sign of the second exodus in Christ, by which his people are delivered from their bondage to sin. It is by this deliverance that we ultimately enter into God's Sabbath rest. So there is a typological aspect to the old covenant Sabbath. The old pointed forward to the new. And this relationship is seen in how they were observed. Israel's Sabbath followed the creation pattern and so was observed on the seventh day. The new covenant Sabbath is rooted in the new creation which was inaugurated with Christ's resurrection on the first day. And so it is celebrated on the first day of the week. It was also on the first day, seven weeks after his resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, that the ascended Christ poured out his spirit on all flesh and began the harvest with the ingathering of 3,000 souls into his new covenant church. The blessings of Sabbath rest are secured for us by Christ and brought to us in union with Christ by the Spirit. Christ, having finished his work of redemption, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Hebrews 1.3. And because we have been made new by the Spirit, we partake in the new creation in Christ. We receive all the benefits of his finished work, And we rest in him even as we continue our work in this world. But we experience his rest here most fully when, according to his command, we gather as his people in his presence on the Lord's day to worship him in spirit, in truth, and in holiness. Offering praise and thanksgiving for his perfect work done on our behalf and for his rich kindness shown to us in christ in his presence we are renewed by the spirit through the means of grace that he provides until at the end of our days we enter into the fullness of that rest that he has prepared for us there is a sense in which we already experience that which we have not yet taken hold of in fullness so under the new covenant on the lord's day we partake more truly and more fully of that rest won by Christ than Israel experienced under the typological covenant. But we press on to take hold of it in the consummation of the new creation. When we think more specifically about worship, as opposed to the Sabbath per se, uh, we also see the typological And temporary nature of worship in the Old Testament which pointed toward the fulfillment and reality in Christ and particularly we see how God provided a way for fallen humanity to approach God in worship how fellowship could be restored and man could receive God's blessings in his presence as he dwelt in their midst after Adam's fall and later in far more elaborate detail God introduced a new means by which man could approach him. Central to the newly instituted approach to God was the need for an atoning sacrifice. Because the due penalty for man's sin is death, if sinful man is to live, it would be at the cost of the life of another. If man was to receive God's blessing, another would have to receive his curse. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Of course, every sacrifice offered by God's institution in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that Christ would provide once for all for the remission of sin. And it is the sufficiency and perfection of that one sacrifice which opens the way for us to come into God's presence and enables us to worship him. This is the purpose for which we were created. In fact, it is the purpose of creation itself. Now, before we get into a closer examination of these things, uh, let me address some basic issues about worship, and we'll start with definitions. What is worship? Well, David uh, Peterson points out that nowhere in scripture is worship actually defined in a succinct way. But looking at the key terms for worship in various contexts, he says that it is clear that the central concepts of worship are homage, service, and reverence. Homage is a, a grateful submission to God. The most common Hebrew word for worship literally means to bend oneself over at the waist. It expresses the idea and custom of bowing down or casting oneself to the ground, kissing the feet or the hem of a garment. This was a total bodily gesture of respect and submission. The term then came to be used for the inner attitude of homage which the outward gesture represented. In the Old Testament, this gesture expressed surrender or submission to the living and true God. Worship also involves service. The Hebrew word meaning to serve is used in several places in Exodus where Moses tells Pharaoh that God said, let my people go that they might serve me. At other points, in the confrontation, the parallel expressions, let my people go, that they might sacrifice to the Lord, that they might hold a festival to me, uh, are used. Um, And that makes clear that some form of ritual service is involved. Other terms translated worship are those which indicate fear, reverence, or respect that is due to God. This fear would involve keeping God's commandments. We see that in Ecclesiastes 12:13. 13. It would involve obeying his word. We see that in 1 Samuel 12:14. Walking in his ways, Deuteronomy 8, 6. Turning away from evil, Proverbs 3, 7. And so this fear and reverence would involve faithfulness to the covenant in all areas of life. In the book, Reformation Worship, Jonathan Gibson offers this definition, and you have that in your notes there. He says, Worship is the right, fitting, and delightful response of moral beings, angelic and human, to God the Creator, Redeemer, and Consummator, for, he, for who He is, as one eternal god in three persons father son and holy spirit and for what he has done in creation and redemption and for what he will do in the coming consummation to whom be all praise and glory now and forever world without end amen i included a couple of uh definitions in your notes there um, pertaining to liturgy and the cultists um, I'm not going to read those right now, but we'll make some reference to those as we go. <clears throat> True worship of God must be willing worship. It must be from the heart. It must be wholehearted indeed. In Exodus 25.2, as contributions were being offered for the building of the tabernacle, God says that they were to be given by every man whose heart moved him. God wants sincere and heartfelt worship and sacrifice. Likewise, Paul says in Romans 12:1 that we are to offer ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice in service to God. Psalm 86:11 says, "Teach me your way, O Lord, that I, may, that I may walk in your truth; unite my heart to fear your name." <clears throat> Additionally, true worship has as its goal, true spiritual communion with the living God. This is why God instituted the whole tabernacle cultus. The tabernacle was built so that God could dwell among his people. Exodus uh, 25.8 is the reference there. Actually, we'll read part of that in a moment. God's purpose in creation and redemption in calling a people to himself, is that he will be with them and be their God and that they would be his people. There in Exodus 25.8 and then also 29.45-46 uh, says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. I will dwell amidst the sons of Israel and I will be their God and they will know that I am Yahweh, their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt to dwell in their midst. I am Yahweh, their God. Thirdly, the true worship of God is to be carefully carried out according to God's own instructions. We often refer to this principle as the regulative principle of worship. And I think uh, in a later class we'll get into that in some more detail that is our worship is to be regulated by what god has specifically revealed and required of us in his word and we see this clearly again with the tabernacle first that it was to be built and all its furnishings were to be made after the pattern shown on the mountain that's exodus 25 40 in fact that um, formula Um, That command is repeated four times in chapters 25 through 27. Those artisans who were gifted by God for the building and decorating of the tabernacle were not to get creative with their own ideas and plans and designs, but they were to use God-given skills to carry out what God specifically revealed and instructed. The priests... Carrying out the worship and performing their priestly duties had no right to vary from what God specifically stipulated. And we see in several cases the severe consequences for doing things their own way. God is a consuming fire. We are called to worship him with reverence and awe. This is what we were created for, and we can't define that for ourselves. Now, um, if we're going to understand worship biblically, we need to look at the foundational documents of the Bible, the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch. And as we do, we will see the central importance of worship in the Old Covenant Scriptures. The Pentateuch is is foundational to the rest of the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. The rest of the Old Testament regularly refers back to the books and the themes of the Pentateuch, from the histories to the wisdom literature. The Psalms make constant reference to them. The prophets are completely dependent upon these books as a foundation for their case against the unfaithfulness of Israel. Of course, it's foundational to the New Testament also, the Gospel writers, Peter and Paul, the author of Hebrews, the book of Revelation. Um, The significance of the books of Moses is seen everywhere. So it is critical if we're going to understand the Bible that we understand the Pentateuch. And while this is not a class on the Pentateuch, it's a class on worship, specifically today, a biblical theology of worship in the Old Testament. I believe the major theme of the Pentateuch is worship. Or perhaps just more slightly, slightly more broad, the dwelling of God with his people or how God made it possible for man to ascend God's holy mountain and come before him and ascribe to him the glory to his name. Now, as we approach this, I want to kind of jump in the middle and uh, then we'll back up and look at the beginning. And I'll be drawing on the work of Michael Morales for this material, particularly his book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? A Biblical Theology of Leviticus. <clears throat> when you consider the Pentateuch as a whole, Leviticus is at the heart of it. Not only because it's the middle book, which is obvious, but it's also the narrative center, and thus the thematic center and theological center. This is important to note. It's understood by scholars that in the ancient Near East, it was common that the center of a work was the heart of the work. And this is true of the Pentateuch as well. If you want to understand the major theme of the Pentateuch, you find it in the center, and Leviticus is the center. Leviticus is about the tabernacle system. It explains all the sacrifices and the priest's duties The holiness codes and the distinctions between clean and unclean. And at the center of Leviticus is the day of atonement in chapter 16. This then is the heart of the Pentateuch. The major theme that informs the rest of our reading of scripture. The need for and provision of atonement by which man can come into the presence of a holy God if you think about the narrative leading up to leviticus you see that it sets up this theological point god is a holy god and you see him creating the cosmos and creating man for the purpose of living in fellowship and communion with him then you see adam's rebellion and sin and consequently being exiled from god's holy presence in the garden sanctuary From that point, the question looms large. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord and who can dwell in his holy place? Leviticus is answering that question and explaining the way which God has opened up for man to enter his presence once again. And that is through the sacrificial system of burnt offerings and sin offerings, through the ministry of the priesthood, and particularly that of the high priest on the day of atonement, when he would enter beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies, into the very throne room of God, where God provides atonement for his people, that they can again enter in and enjoy his presence. So the heart of the Pentateuch shows humanity's need for blood atonement in order to be reconciled to God and come into his presence. At the very foundation of the canon is this gospel truth, that God provides atonement for his people, that they could have fellowship with him and that they could worship him. But as I said, the ministry of the tabernacle was typological and temporary. It was a dramatic and a prophetic enactment of what God would do in reality in the future, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the true priesthood And single sacrifice of Christ God himself would accomplish the purpose of the day of atonement through a true substitute who would be offered once for all in the place of sinful man all of the theology of sacrifice underscores the idea that we are unworthy to be in God's presence and that we can only approach him in a way that is acceptable to him the way that he has instituted. We should not think that since Christ has fulfilled the types and shadows and that we don't have to participate in bloody sacrifices, that we can approach God with any less concern for holiness and with an attitude of reverence. When we see Christ and how he has fulfilled all the theology of the sacrifices through what he suffered and endured, to make atonement for our sin. It should create in us an even deeper sense of awe and amazement and reverence as we come into his presence than the types in the shadows did for the people of Israel. There is a lot more that could be said on this and uh, we will make our way back to it. But as I said, I wanna now go back to the beginning and get a better picture of what God is communicating from there about approaching him in worship and uh, because I don't have nearly the time I'd like to to develop this, I'll just tell you where I'm going, and I give some support to hopefully make it clear. Um, And that is this. God created the cosmos as a temple, to be a temple for the living God, after which the tabernacle and later the temple are patterned. And Eden is an archetype of or or the original Holy of Holies, which the tabernacle and temple on some level are aimed at recapturing. And we'll look at um, some uh, historical, literary, biblical and theological uh, evidence of this. Pastor Desmond mentioned a couple of weeks ago in reference to the Sabbath that Eden was an archetypal sanctuary that it was the original holy place on earth where man and god dwelled in fellowship together and he said part of adam's priestly role was to expand the glory of the garden to encompass the entire creation so the whole earth would be the locus for sabbath rest and worship and that is because the whole creation was designed to be a temple this may not seem evident on a quick reading of Genesis 1 through 2 3 but Morales argues that one cannot understand the tabernacle cultists apart from grasping the nature of creation along with humanity's deepest purpose within it and so we'll examine how the creation account portrays the cosmos as God's house and the sabbath days communion with God as the goal for humanity <coughs> <coughs> excuse me in the ancient near eastern context in which the pentateuch was written the analogy between cosmos or creation and temple were common. The cosmos was seen as a large temple and the temple as a small cosmos. This is true also of the biblical account. The creation itself is shown to be analogically related to the tabernacle. And this can be seen uh, in various features of each, in the descriptions that are given of each and in the literary structures that contain those So I want to mention some of these intertextual parallels between creation and the tabernacle. At times, I'll use temple and tabernacle interchangeably if I'm referring to their common design and purpose. As we look at these parallels between the cosmos and the tabernacle as God's house, we recognize with Solomon that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him Any more than the house that Solomon built for him to dwell in. First, I would mention um, that the term uh, Ruach Elohim, or the Spirit of God, or the Wind of God, appears in both Genesis 1-2 for the construction of the cosmos, and in Exodus 31-3 and 35-31 for the construction of the tabernacle. Additionally, for the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus 31.3, the Spirit endows Bezalel, the chief artisan, with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And these are the same attributes by which God is said to have fashioned the cosmos in Proverbs 3.19 and 20. Uh, I think I included those verses in your notes there. <coughs> reading Proverbs three nineteen to twenty, because I don't have the other in my notes. Yahweh by wisdom founded the earth. He established the heavens by understanding, by his knowledge the deeps were broken up. And again, those attributes uh, were bestowed upon Bezalel to construct the tabernacle. In Psalm 104.2, Job 9.8 and Isaiah 40.22, creation is referred to as a tabernacle or a tent pitched by God. Elsewhere, it's likened to a house that God has established with pillars, windows, and doors. Um, The cosmos is thought of as a three-decked house, the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Uh, the references to, um, to pillars and windows and doors I don't know if I have that for you there but job 26:11 Genesis 7:11 7, Psalm 7823 <clears throat> Other creation terminology which is shared with the tabernacle includes the word translated light in Genesis 1:14 to 15 and you can see that. In your notes there rather than lights it would be better translated let there be lamps or let there be luminaries since elsewhere in the pentateuch this hebrew term always refers to the lamps of the tabernacle one scholar notes the sun and moon are like sacred lamps in the sanctuary of the universe this word confirms the liturgical character of the Genesis narrative. Another aspect of the liturgical focus of the account is that the word often translated seasons in Genesis 1.14, relating to the events of the fourth creation day, never means the seasons of the year, winter, spring, summer, fall, like we tend to think, but elsewhere is used of the fixed times for the cultic festivals or for the festival itself, um, or else it references the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. So, a primary function um, of these heavenly lamps is for fixing the annual days of the cultic festivals of Israel. Moreover, the seven-day structure of the creation account is reflected in the seven speeches for the tabernacle instructions that God gives to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 25 to 31. The seventh speech addresses the Sabbath, corresponding to the creation week's Sabbath rest. And uh, there we read, And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Now you speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you will keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations in order for you to know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever, because in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That's Exodus 31, uh, 12 to 17. So we see that in a profound sense Both the cosmos and the tabernacle Are geared toward the same Sabbath end Both are constructed for the same purpose uh, Finally on this point uh, I want to point out the completion of the tabernacle uh, The completion of the tabernacle construction At the end of Genesis It is described in terms um, that very closely echo the completion of creation using similar words and phrases. And I have those for you there, but you can see comparing Exodus 39 and 40 to Genesis 1 and 2. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The next pair. Thus was completed all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Next, when Moses had finished the work. And then God finished the work which he had been doing. Moses blessed them. And God blessed. To sanctify it. And all its furnishings, God sanctified it. So you see here the close parallels between the construction of the cosmos and the tabernacle. Again, Morales says, As the main character of Genesis 1, God is indeed portrayed as something of a workman who builds his house, inspects, pronounces upon his work, and then takes his Sabbath rest. The house itself inasmuch as it is the house of God being a temple. The various intertextual parallels between the creation and the tabernacle accounts show that there is an analogical relationship between creation and tabernacle. Again, the cosmos is a large temple and the temple is a small cosmos. So if the cosmos was created to be a large temple, what kind of place was Eden? Of course, we speak of the Garden of Eden, and at times we might imagine that the borders of Eden were simply the borders of the Garden, that the two were geographically coextensive. But the Bible actually gives us a different picture of the geography and of the topography of Eden. First, if you look in Genesis 2, you'll see that the text does not confine Eden to the garden. Rather, in verse 8, it says that God planted planted a garden in Eden and put Adam there. So Eden is actually larger than just the garden itself. And so when Adam was called to expand the boundaries of the garden everywhere in his dominion, it would have been done first throughout Eden and then throughout the ends of the earth. Additionally, from the description given in Genesis and more specifically in some later prophetic writings, we get a picture that Eden is actually a mountain where there is a, a spring-fed water that flows out of Eden to water the garden and then divides into four rivers to water the whole surrounding land. More explicitly, Ezekiel 28 13 to 14 describes the Garden of Eden as being upon the holy mountain of God. And so we see this picture of Eden as a holy mountain and as the garden, the garden as a uniquely holy place, a holy of holies, where God meets with mankind and invites him into fellowship with himself. The themes of the mountain of God in conjunction with the worship of God will appear again and again throughout the scriptures. One final point on this uh, in regard to Adam's priestly role. Uh, Desmond spoke about this as well, but I just want to note two textual correspondences between the garden and the tabernacle. Uh, one is that the terms used for Adam's commission in the garden in, in 2.15 are the precise terms used of the priest's work on the tabernacle and temple. And you see that in Numbers Uh, 3, 7 to 8, 826, and 18, 5 and 6. There uh, is an additional parallel as well in God clothing Adam and Eve and Moses clothing the priests of the tabernacle uh, for the tabernacle ministry. In those accounts, the same verb is used of each and the same noun is used of each. Morales cites... The long history of interpretation that views Adam as a priest dating back to the the second temple period. Some seeing him specifically as the primal high priest. He adds with a view toward the theological and liturgical purpose of the creation account. I would suggest further that the early chapters of Genesis were not composed merely to rehearse origins but to inform the worship of ancient Israel, explaining the rituals of the tabernacle cultus, Genesis 1-3 to conforms to the general priestly categories of sacred space, cosmos as tabernacle, Eden as the Holy of Holies, sacred time, the Sabbath, and sacred status, Adam's priestly role, all of which will inform our understanding of the tabernacle cultists. Eden then becomes the archetypical pattern when it comes to man meeting with God in fulfillment of his purpose of worshiping his gracious creator and living in fellowship in the midst of his blessings. Corresponding to this, the later high priest of Israel serving in the sanctuary can be understood as an Adam figure serving in the architectural sanctuary of God. God. But of course, this Edenic picture, this original state of innocence and peace and fellowship with God did not extend by Adam's faithful obedience throughout the rest of the world, but rather through his disobedience was brought into a state of corruption and decay and man himself into a state of sin and misery. And from that moment, God introduced new means by which man could be brought back into fellowship with himself, new ways by which the way can be open for man to come and worship God and receive his blessings. So we'll now talk about being exiled from Eden. Adam was blessed abundantly in Eden, and even greater blessing was held out to him. But instead of hearing God's call to worship him, Through faithful trust and obedience and accepting his invitation to feast at the tree of life, Adam listened to the call of the serpent, and he trusted him, and he ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden. So he was cast out of the garden sanctuary, exiled from Eden, and from the blessed presence of God, and excluded from partaking of the tree of life. Driving him out, God placed the cherubim, at the east gate to Eden to guard the way with a flaming sword. Morales reflects on this. This central tragic event, humanity's exile from the presence of God, drives the plot of history itself. The tragedy of the fall is the catastrophe about which the drama of the Bible turns, a drama that finds its resolution through the promised Messiah, who in bearing our sins upon the cross So to bear the holy wrath will one day bear us up into the glory of our Father's presence. What was once the goal of creation, in other words, is now the goal of salvation, namely worship. And in God's inscrutable wisdom, that worship, that blinding glory of life before the triune Godhead, will, in the new creation, far exceed what would have been there would have been had there never been a tragic fall. For then we could not sing about the vast immensity of that love poured out with the blood, the blood of God's own lamb. But we get ahead of ourselves a bit here. So we need to see first the progressive movement of sinful humanity away from God's presence and blessing. We know that before God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, he both promised a deliverer and provided a covering for them for their nakedness. It seems this promise then was accompanied by a sign of his kind intention. And as it required the death of an animal for them to be covered, something of the manner of how that promise would be fulfilled was also manifested to them. Another would have to die to provide salvation. As David Gibson explains, the idea of sacrifice as a prerequisite for being in the presence of a holy God, whatever the duration, would become essential for all future worship of the chosen seed. When we come to the next narrative with Cain and Abel in chapter 4, we see that they had been taught about offering sacrifices to God, but we also find out right away that there is an acceptable way to approach God and an unacceptable way. We are told about Abel's offering, that he brought uh, an animal sacrifice, that it was of the firstborn of his flock with the fat portions, and that he offered them by faith, according to Hebrews 11.4. Of Cain's, we're only told that it was of the fruit of the ground and that Cain's offering was not acceptable. It seems reasonable that his sacrifice was not accepted because it lacked all of the elements that Abel's uh, had, which made it acceptable. Even so, uh, God told him that he need, he told him what he needed to do to be accepted. <clears throat> but instead of offering an acceptable sacrifice, he slew his brother in jealousy. God's judgment was that the curse. On the ground was magnified for Cain. It would not produce for him. And he was driven further east of Eden. Farther away from the presence of the Lord. Which seems to indicate that they had previously remained fairly close to the entrance to Eden. That was guarded by the cherubim. And perhaps had even offered their sacrifices near the gates entrance to that sanctuary itself. Either way, Cain was driven farther east, away from the presence of the Lord. We've looked then at the sacrificial covering provided by God in Eden and Abel's acceptable animal sacrifice. I want to draw your attention to just two other instances of sacrifice in Genesis, those of Noah and Abraham. The quick escalation of sin and violence in the case of Cain soon became the norm as the sin of humanity multiplied and eventually resulted in God's judgment of the whole earth in the flood. When Noah and his family came through the flood, it was a new beginning for humanity. And just as God had placed Adam in the garden of Eden's mountain, so Genesis 8.4 says God placed the ark. Same verb. Or he brought it to rest on the mountain of Ararat. And there Noah received the call, as Adam had, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And there on that mountain, having been saved by God's grace, Noah worshipped, offering up a lavish sacrifice of every clean animal and bird as whole burnt offerings, a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. After Noah's descendants multiplied and the peoples of the earth rebelled at Babel, and were scattered across the earth in judgment, God called Abraham in chapter 12 and promised to bless him and through him to bless all nations. He would start a new people to whom and through whom he would reveal the knowledge of God and make known the salvation of God. Yet in chapter 22, God then called Abraham to sacrifice to him his only son, whom he loved, the son of promise, given to Abraham in his old age. And in faith, Abraham traveled to the holy mountain where God directed him. And with the son that God had provided, he went up the mountain to worship God. His faithful devotion brought both commendation from God and was answered with another provision, that of a ram, which Abraham sacrificed to the Lord who had given him back his son. This foreshadowing, the provision that God would make on the holy mountain where he would give his own son who would lay down his life for the sheep. With these snapshots then of sacrifice and worship in Genesis, nevertheless, Genesis ends with death in Egypt and impending slavery for God's people. Now, as we come to Exodus, if I were to ask you what the book of Exodus is about, I suspect many of you might say the Exodus from Egypt. That seems obvious, but that probably would not be the best answer. As important as the Exodus motif is in the book and in scripture in general, uh, even the book of Exodus is not ultimately about the Exodus. There are many Exodus patterns that, uh, as <clears throat> in the narratives that lead up to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, and as important as that event is to Israel's history and Israel's scriptures, as much as the prophets in the New Testaments draw on that exodus to develop the idea of the second exodus or the new exodus in Christ, the central focus of the book of Exodus is not the exodus. Rather, the exodus serves a greater end. And this shouldn't surprise us because... Even as God instructs Moses, and Moses goes to Pharaoh to demand that he let God's people go, it is to the end that they might serve him, that they might worship him, that they might hold a festival to him and sacrifice to him. They were to be led out of bondage by the mighty hand of God in order to worship God and fellowship with him, just as we are delivered out of the bondage of sin that we might worship and enjoy him and serve him. This centrality of worship can be seen in a number of ways. Uh, Besides those direct statements I just referenced, we could talk about Yahweh's defeat of the false gods in Egypt, demonstrating for his people the folly of worshiping them, or the commandments he gave to Moses, particularly the first four, instructing how and how not to worship him, or the appearance of God on the mountain, where he established his covenant with Israel and in the cloud of glory where he passed before Moses and declared his name and nature on that mountain for the specific instructions about the building of the tabernacle or the culminating events of the book when the glory cloud of God descends from Mount Sinai and comes to dwell in the tabernacle in the midst of his people. Exodus is about the worship of of the true and living God who delivers his people from bondage and death, establishes his covenant with them, atones for their sin, and dwells in their midst as they worship and serve him. Uh, While only four chapters are devoted to the actual events of the Exodus, including the Passover leading up to it and the song of Moses celebrating it afterwards, um, More than half of the book, 22 chapters, is devoted to events at Mount Sinai. In fact, the events at Mount Sinai are revealed in the last 22 chapters of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers. That's 59 chapters encompassing the center third of the entirety of the Pentateuch, dealing with the events and the revelations at Mount Sinai, Events which took place over a period of about one year. It's a massive amount of material devoted to a very short amount of time. By the sheer amount of material devoted to it and its central place in the Pentateuch, what happened at Sinai is most important in its revelation of God's will for the worship of his people. And at the center of it, as we said, is the tabernacle and the Day of Atonement. When God led the descendants of Jacob out of Egypt by the hand of Moses, he brought them to Mount Sinai, the holy mountain at which he had previously appeared to Moses in the bush and revealed his covenant name to him. And in Exodus 19, we see that God distinguished his chosen servant Moses from the rest of the people by calling him alone to ascend to the summit of Mount Sinai and there to be in God's presence. While on that mountain, Moses received the law from God's hand and there Moses later requested and was granted to see God's glory (coughs) as his goodness was revealed and his name was declared. Moses alone was granted this unique privilege to be in the presence of God, to receive his word, to give to the people and to intercede before God on behalf of the people. But God who graciously allowed this access to Moses also allowed lesser degrees of access to others. The priests, Aaron and his sons, along with 70 elders, were allowed to go up on the mountain, but not to the summit or in the cloud where only Moses could go. When the covenant was confirmed in Exodus 24, Moses and these elders and priests were allowed to, who were allowed to access the mountain, ate and drank In the presence of god while moses the priests, and the elders were on the mountain the rest of the people remained at the foot of the mountain and they were not even permitted to touch it lest they die though they saw the cloud and the smoke and fire of god's presence and heard his voice they were so terrified they begged that no further word be spoken to them but that moses alone would mediate on their behalf not only Could they not ascend the holy mountain of the Lord? But they did not want to for fear of their life. They understood the need for a mediator. These three degrees of access would continue to be a feature of worship for Israel, contained in the very design and architecture of the tabernacle and the temple. Now all this happened at the initial giving of the law and the establishment of the covenant, But it was God's purpose to dwell with his people in a more intimate, mediated way through, more intimate way mediated through the priestly sacrificial system, which the Lord also revealed to Moses. That system would be carried out in the tabernacle in which God would dwell, not at the inaccessible peak of Mount Sinai, but down in the midst of his people. The plan and design for the tabernacle were likewise given to Moses on the mountain and he was told specifically to build it according to the pattern that was revealed to him. And we've, we've seen that uh, four times Moses was told to build it according to the pattern shown him. And uh, in the book of Hebrews we are told that the tabernacle was a copy
1: <clears throat>
0: patterned after the heavenly sanctuary. So not only was it a microcosm, a small cosmos, but it was also reflective of the true tabernacle in heaven. Starting at Exodus 25, the rest of the book, with the exception of three chapters, deals in some way with the tabernacle cultus, the contributions, the design, the priests, the construction of the tabernacle, and ultimately the filling of the tabernacle with God's glory. Before we address that, though, um, David Gibson gives a helpful breakdown of the pattern of Israel's worship as it was mediated by Moses in chapters 19 to 24 of Exodus. And I have that list there for you. I won't reference the, uh, the scriptures specifically, but we have the gathering at Mount Sinai. We have the calling by God's word. We have cleansing through sacrifice. We have mediated access through the appointed prophet-priest. We have divine communication with the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant are revealed. We have consecration, the people's promise of obedience. We have sacrifice, burnt offerings, and peace offerings. <clears throat> um, we have divine communication again, the Book of the Covenant elaborated. We have cleansing. Where the blood of the burnt offerings and the peace offerings are sprinkled. <coughs> we have again mediated access to God's presence. And it concludes then in 2411 with that fellowship meal that I mentioned. Now, as I said, the remaining chapters of Exodus focus mainly on the tabernacle and its regulated ministry. Um, And this is divided into two main sections. There's the instructions for the tabernacle, and there's the construction of the tabernacle, concluding with God's glory filling the tabernacle. Because we're basically out of time, uh, I want to conclude with reading the final chapter of Exodus uh, and offer a few comments after. So I'm going to need five people to volunteer to read with a loud voice. So if I can get uh, somebody to take Exodus 40 verses 1 through 8, Sabrina, thank you. Then verses 9 to 15, thank you. Uh, Verses 16 to 21, thank you, Will. Uh, 22 to 27, Pito, thank you. Which one? 22 to 27. Yes, sir. And then 28 to 33. Okay, I didn't see you, Dad, sorry. Okay, um, and I'll take the last last section.
1: The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and she will put in the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set it up on its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar to put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all of its furniture, so that it, it may be, become holy. You should also anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all of its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You should also anoint the basin and its stand, and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and shall wash them with water and put, and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them and as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood, priesthood throughout their generations.
0: This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him,
1: so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the lord had commanded moses he took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat Mm -hmm. above on the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark Of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting. For the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the, of the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting and offered on it burnt offering and the meal offering just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the ladder between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing when they, Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses <coughs>
0: 33 as well
1: he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway and the court because
0: Moses finished the gate. then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys wherever the cl- whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle the people of Israel would set out But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Just a few points to note here. First, the tabernacle was constructed less than one year from the Passover and Exodus. Uh, Second, I want to note something of the elaborate arrangement and detail in this summary of the tabernacle and its furniture you you see the care and the detail and this is just a very brief summary Um, mostly though i just want to consider uh, the last section of the chapter in verse 34 we see the glory cloud of yahweh that had been on the holy mountain come down and both cover the tent of meeting And fill the tabernacle. What had made Sinai a holy mountain was the presence of the glory of God. And now that glorious presence was in the tabernacle, which became the new sanctuary of the Lord. As God had dwelt with man on Mount Eden before the fall and before man was exiled, and as he had dwelt on Mount Sinai, over the previous year with his newly constituted people. So now his dwelling was among them in a traveling sanctuary, a mobile mountain of sorts, until he would lead them to the mountain that he had chosen in the promised land. In verse 35, we see that the presence was so intense that even Moses could not enter the tent. Quote, because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This highlights the intensity of God's holiness as it is manifest in his earthly dwelling place. Moses had been in God's presence at the summit of Sinai to receive the law. He had spent 40 days and 40 nights in his presence, and his face shone reflecting the glory. He had asked for and was granted a glimpse Of a special manifestation of his glory as the Lord passed by him in the cleft of the mountain, revealing his goodness and declaring his covenant faithfulness. All these were an experience of an accommodated presence of Yahweh. And his presence in the tabernacle was accommodated as well. But it was so intense that Moses could not bear the weight of God's glory. In the tabernacle. Even for Moses. Access to God was not something. That could be taken for granted. Approaching God. In his tabernacle. Can only be done. On his terms. Because he is a holy God. But nevertheless. This holy God. Is there among his people. In his portable sanctuary. He had drawn near. And he would lead them and he would guide them in his time and in his way. When he moves, they will move. And when he remains, (coughs) they will remain. And a final consideration. As those who are sharers in a better covenant, we have a mediator who is able to enter not merely an earthly copy of the heavenly sanctuary but one who is himself the fullness and the radiance of god's glory and who has entered heaven itself and gone beyond the veil to minister in the true sanctuary on our behalf that we might enter with him so let's go ahead and uh, pray Our gracious God, we are so thankful for what you have provided us in Christ and we are thankful for your word by which you reveal yourself and reveal (coughs) your will for us (coughs) and your way of salvation. We pray that You would continue to be gracious to us and continue to show us wonderful things in your word that we might know you more fully and truly that knowing you we might be transformed more into your image through the working of christ and his spirit in our lives and we pray that this would result in lives lived for your glory and lips that never tire of declaring your glory for your worthy. Lord, as we now go into our time of worship with the rest of the body, we pray, Lord, that you would bless that as you love to bless your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.